You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is the Stir with Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. A little less than four months ago, John Miller and Zach Russo released an independent film through the New Yorker called The Interview, which shines a light on what it means to be able to get a parole in New York State. It features, very dramatically, a number of incarcerated individuals, formally, who, as you find at the end of the film, were finally released. And it makes us understand what it is to have to make your case and try to justify why you should be able to leave prison according to the minimum amount of time that you were sentenced. It was a very powerful film. I only became aware of it recently. I sent it to a panel, um, Rabbi Kolakowski, Rabbi Scheinman, and Willie. Uh, Willie had been incarcerated himself and is going to actually talk about what it was like when he had to confront that same New York State Parole Board. The two rabbis have intense familiarity with people who have had to make this case. So you're going to hear their discussion about the short film. But first, what I have ready for you is a condensed version of that, an audio condensed version, which basically gives you some of the voices of the frustration. You're also going to hear uh, the voices of James Ferguson and Carol Shapiro. James Ferguson is uh, a parole commissioner who, appointed by George Pataki, uh, feels that he has to uh, be the watchdog and he's not going to buy the acting. And Carol Shapiro is going to give you a little more of a um, a more sympathetic understanding of what was going on. So those are the voices you're going to hear. You're going to be able to make it out pretty obviously who's who. So this is coming up, the condensed version of this uh, film, which you can find on the New Yorker website called The Interview. And then it's followed by a discussion. I hope that this uh, hearing the, the excerpts Plus the discussion, well, I hope move the needle towards elimination of this type of uh, subjecting people to what's clearly seemingly a very unfair way, especially as you're going to hear from Rai Scheinman, the way the system is practiced in the state of Illinois. So here it comes. Nobody wants to talk about the worst thing they ever did, all right? Nobody wants to talk about that. I try to go in there and just be honest. Just be honest. That's, that's, all, that's, all, that's all you can do. I was hopeful that I was going to be able to go home and be with my son and my mom. You're being asked to... Um, 
relive a moment that you probably struggled with for a very long time. Being frank, I was like scared. Uh, I figured it would be hostile. You sit down and you know, think about, you know, what could you say? What would you say? My worst period of my life would not forever define me. Because my then boyfriend and I, both of us were crack cocaine addicts. We ended the life of my grandmother um, to fuel our addiction. And I made a commitment then that that would be it. I would never hurt another human being. In 96, when I first went to the parole board, I'm hopeful because reading the guidelines for what can possibly get you out or grant you parole, I was asked to, one, do anger management, two, substance abuse treatment, three, do a vocation, learn a skill, and four, my time. The first three of which I completed before my first five years. I had a master's degree. I, I'm, a, I'm a published poet. I was a published poet by that time. I had multiple job offers. I was ready to go. It was around Christmas time, and I said I may show up on my wife's doorstep for Christmas. First got my denial letter. I was disappointed. The second time I got a denial letter, I was disappointed, I was hurt. The third time I got a denial letter, I was disappointed, I was hurt, I was angry. Went back in 2002, denial again, two years. 2004, 2006, 2008, 2009, 2013, 15. What could I say, what could I do? 2009, 2011, 2013, with no other justification than the nature of the crime. The nature of your crime, the one issue that you can never change. Don't matter if you look at this crime 10 years, 20 years, 100 years from now, it's going to be the same. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be the same. For the interview, it's impersonal. They sit you in a room, there's a big television in front of you, three commissioners sitting there, and you're talking to a television. And each time, right out the gate, we had a discussion about the instant offense. Tell me, how do you take the life of somebody who was always there for you? Make me understand how it was just so easy for you to end her life. My jaw dropped. The tears started flowing. I couldn't get control of myself. I couldn't answer his question because I was so overwrought with guilt. At that time, I was with an abusive boyfriend. So anything he told me to do, pretty much I did. 
when he decided he wanted to get more money, he went into my grandmother's room and began to suffocate her. I walked in to see him doing this and was threatened with, if I don't help, my son was next, who was laying in the bed right next to her. I spent most of my time crying. I didn't feel comfortable talking to them, you know? Most of my hearings were just focused on the crime. We did all that in court. The judge saw it and heard everything that could possibly be said or heard about it. That was part of his consideration when he sentenced me to the minimum. I had a commissioner named Ferguson twice. He's a former prosecutor. And he would conduct the hearing like he's interrogating somebody. This guy's doing your hearing. That's very disturbing. You've come to prison because you were not acting like a human being on the outside. Now you're inside. We want you to act like a human being. Ferguson was a, was a pit bull. He told you straight up that he didn't like you. He didn't like what you were in jail for. And if he, you know, he, he was straight to the point. You have some individuals um, who are very cunning, who can sit there and BS you for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes, and tell you everything you want to hear. And if you don't have the, the um, experience, if you don't have the chops, to assess someone who has perhaps dedicated their life uh, to criminal activity. Someone else may get raped uh, or murdered, uh, and that's your responsibility. I look at their demeanor, I listen to the sound of their crackling voice, I see perhaps tears in their eyes. Some are tr true tears, some aren't. I asked another commissioner, have you considered the fact that during my incarceration I've done X, Y, and Z? And the commissioner picks up my file and goes, Oh, yeah, we read all that. Just flips through it like, like a phone book. Like, yeah, we read all that and drops it back down the table and looks at me like, okay, now what? In prison, some of us focus on changing who we are. You know, we're consumed with, with helping others make this same transformation. And for it not to have any value when you go to a parole board, no value whatsoever. That's... It almost enrages you that they could be so callous. You're in on a term of from six months to ten years for assault with a deadly weapon? Yes, sir. And the whole parole scheme was first invented in New York State. Why is it that you didn't learn from your first incarceration? So this is the epicenter for the system, and yet it's one of the worst now. During the Pataki administration, the release rates completely flip-flopped. If you had, let's say, three out of four who came before the board getting out, three out of four under Pataki stayed in. He did a, an absolutely brilliant job. The justice system cannot survive the hug-a-thug mentality, meaning you've had a bad childhood, let me give you a hug, now you can go free.
I personally know men who are being hit by the parole board and they're in their 70s. If you've been in prison for 20, 30 years, people are not a high risk to commit murder again or to commit arson again. The research is so clear on this and has been for years. What you might have been as an 18-year-old or a 17-year-old or even a 20-year-old is not the person sitting before you today as a 50-year-old, a 60-year-old, or a 70-year-old. And we are running geriatric institutions in America right now because we're not releasing people. So people might say, oh, you know, you have to let them out. You have to let them out. That's the only thing that matters. No, it's not. I have members of the public who feel that the component of retribution has not been satisfied. All I could think about was being able to see my son, my grandchildren, at least live some semblance of a life, because I grew up in prison. After the first few boards, I stopped telling my wife I was gone because it was just messing her up. You know, she'd get all excited and get ready for you to come home, and then you get denied. After about six boards, I stopped telling anybody I was going aboard, I would just go. I had just turned 28 when I was arrested. And when I was released, I was 66 years old. Why do you think you were eventually released? I think the determining factor for me being released was the fact that a new commissioner was the lead interviewer in my case. Nowhere else believes that you shouldn't be forgiven and that you don't have the right to move on just because you did something heinous at one fixed point in your life. Shalom, this is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. Um, Tonight, on the heels of a recently released New Yorker video called um, The Interview, which is really called The Dehumanizing Process of What It Takes to Sit in Front of a Parole Board, um, that is, I don't know if it's going viral, but I know that many people have commented on it, uh, we thought that we would perhaps revisit tonight, or maybe take a deeper dive into what it means to have to stand, sit in front of a parole board. Uh, they talked about in the video that you're actually, today's in today's time, they're not even there. In other words, you, you're speaking in front of a, a video camera and you know the, the, the people who are going to decide your fate, whether if you have committed this violent crime that has put you into prison for so is with us tonight. Sorry, Willie, Willie, Willie understands this much better than I do. And basically what we're talking about here is, and I'm here with Willie and Yitzchuk and uh, Kowalkowski, and of course with Rabbi Scheiman from Hind Institute. Um, and they know a lot more of it than I do. Uh, all I know is that this video, because of its quality, uh, has struck chords with many. Uh, and Willie, yes, you're correct. In other words, the idea of coming in front of the parole board is, let me say it better. When you, when you are sentenced, there is a minimum amount of time you have to serve. And the minimum means 
if situations are met, it's not a commutation. The parole will decide you don't have to serve your maximum sentence. I think that's is that, is that that's more accurate, right? Definitely more accurate. Okay, so Willie, uh, you saw the video. I know it, it, it moved you. Um, why don't you discuss what you think is the inequities of the system of having to go in front of a parole board? And maybe you can even talk about from your own experience what it's like. Sure. You know, the, the context, by the way, is the inhumanity, when you talk about the inhumanity, would not be seen as an inhumanity if the parole board were doing what essentially a parole board should be doing, which is if a person has reached the point of going before a parole board and has largely met the requirements, behaved, not had violations, uh, done whatever programming that that person is supposed to be doing in prison, and if they've met those obligations, they should be granted parole. There are probably cases that there are gray areas where some people have some minor violations, have done some things while in prison that maybe um, raise questions. Those are the cases where a parole board really should be analyzing and asking questions, mm-hmm. trying to determine if that person deserves to go back or should serve more towards the maximum, depending on those variables. And then there are cases where people are in prison who committed violence against other prisoners and done some other things who are likely to be denied parole. If that were the case, I think we wouldn't even be talking about inhumanity. But we're talking about a a parole board, particularly in New York, which is the, the case with the video, where parole is almost determined against the person who's coming before the parole board. Um, The evaluation that's made by most of the parole commissioners is an evaluation of the crime. It's not an evaluation of the person who has been in prison for two years, five years, 30 years, whatever the the period of time before their eligibility before parole hearing is. They're not seeing if in fact they were corrected by this Department of Corrections or rehabilitated. They're not looking at, really looking at the record, but they come back to time and again, not all, but most cases, the crime. They want to know, even if the person has maintained innocence, even if the person has said, you know, I did X, but I was also convicted for Y and Z. I didn't do Y and Z. They require that person to say that they can, they were convicted and they did X, Y, and Z. So, so and there's we, two there's two things, Willie. The one thing is the um, the revisiting the crime, which they admit that they did, but they would like to assume that the prison time, the penance, the change should make that issue a non-issue. They've already been tried for that. They've already gone through. Right. They've been found guilty on it. What you're saying is that especially if they've had to been if they've been sentenced to something which they believe was unfair but the jury found them guilty they need in this parole board hearing they need to actually own up to something that they didn't do and and you're tell, and what you're saying is that there are plenty of people who go in front of those parole boards and unfortunately they were found guilty but they aren't able within themselves to right. start talking about this other uh, this other crime, which they didn't do, and the parole board hexed them over their head and says, 
you're saying you didn't do it? That's the biggest proof that and we can't. Denied, and they're denied almost, almost automatically when they say that. And incidentally, it's not only those who go by trial. There is, and we've, we've spoken about this, because of the uh, tremendous discretion prosecutors have and the coercive nature of plea bargaining, as we've, as we've talked about, studies have shown both on the federal and on the state levels, the process of getting a trial by jury has gone from 20% in the 1990s to 3% today, which means 97% of American justice is done by plea bargaining. And the reason for that is prosecutors will quite often coerce a plea out of a defendant by simply suggesting to that defendant, you either take the five years that we're offering you, or we're going to add five counts by the time you go to trial, and you'll be facing 50 years. And most people, and, and it, you know, the record shows and the data shows, most people will simply take the plea, whether they did it, whether they didn't do it, whether okay. they did one of the charges or not, it makes no difference. This, the judge will actually ask these people, and say, you're not under any duress to take this plea, are you? And the person, of course, is told by their lawyer, you have to answer in the affirmative. I'm not, in, I'm not under any duress. When in fact, the coercion okay. is right. tremendous duress. Right. So well, this is, again, this is obviously another example of something that in the criminal justice system, which we need to address. But you're saying as far as our topic tonight it yes. just compounds the problem of appearing from the parole board so willie i want to take you in and, and you've yes. been great consistently we've taken you into places which have been difficult go back yourself mm -hmm. you, to when you had to make your case um yes. were was it like the video from the new yorker that they weren't even in the room or were they in the Correct. room with Correct. you and this was before long before covid but it was all done by video Okay, what, what, what do you what do you what do you think is the purpose of that? Is that to make it de the the, the New Yorker no. video suggests it suggests that it's a dehumanizing aspect of distancing you from those people in front of you? How did you feel? It, it is it's something that is done not just to dehumanize it. I, I get it. You have a limited number of parole commissioners in the state of New York. It's a fairly large state. They can't be in all places at all times. I don't know if they did that 20 years ago, but they, they must have, and they must have had much fewer hearings in order to do that. So I, you, know, you have to be realistic that in order for them to have the number of hearings, unless they increase the number of parole commissions dramatically, they're simply not going to be able to have the hearings that they need to have. I get it about it not being a sense of connection because you're on a video screen, and it's very hard to look somebody in the eye and for them to gauge whether you're being honest and candid and answering them truthfully. And when they ask you difficult questions um, on a screen, I don't know how they how they can determine that. But let me just in terms of some context, uh, because of a work I did while in prison, I was in, I was granted six months earlier parole hearing. Three months before that hearing, I was called in by the counselor and told that they questioned the hours of work that I did to qualify <laughs> that. And fortunately, I was able to reach an attorney who was able to go through and have the numbers audited by somebody privately who worked for the uh, corrections department. 
to give the time over because some, what happens often is that they'll say, okay, we'll review your numbers. Meanwhile, the time will pass. You're going to miss that six-month bonus that you're supposed to get that you've earned according to their own guidelines. And you lose out on the six months that you've worked for to get. So in that context, you should understand that you're feeling already like they're trying to take away something that you that you have earned, not that you're entitled to, but that you've actually put in the effort working. In, the, in my case, it was to provide people with resumes, prepare them for coming home by um, uh, helping them find places to live in whatever city in New okay. York. So, live. so in so other on. words, you you felt that they already were stonewalling and putting pressure on you because uh, and, and, and nitpicking in your mind about so not even nitpicking. They were already trying to take away time, uh-huh. which and, and you know, in the context of you hearing about other people who go to parole hearings and how then the term is hit by the parole board that you know they're not going to give you parole. And so you prepare a package, you get letters from people to send to the parole law, to the parole commissioners, so that when they're reviewing a case, that they're looking at not just, you know, your record, but, you know, things you may have accomplished before. And, and so the, did you do that, Willie? Did you get people to we, write? Did you get people put, to write to the... Correct. You, we, put, we put together a package, and both my lawyer and the counselor in my case, both said that in spite of the fact that you had maintained that you were guilty of one thing but not guilty of the other three charges, you cannot do that. So the um, the attorney actually helped me craft a uh, a good way of, of essentially not admitting guilt to the three charges that I felt were added by uh, then Attorney General Schneiderman out of a personal vendetta um by by just talking about the genuine guilt and remorse over the thing that I did do, which mm-hmm. you know kind of so, guided parole officers but the parole commissioners away from saying individually mm-hmm. I want to know about each count, which was 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 very, very smart and made it a lot easier to go through that process. Did now we saw in, in, in the New Yorker video, which I guess mm-hmm. I'll provide a link for for people uh, to see. Um, the the persons that were sitting there kept on saying, you know, I didn't want to go back to my original sin that I did. I didn't want to talk about that. I it, it it pained me. And once they had to go back there, it it, it they lost their equilibrium. They lost their ability to really cogently make their case, and they turned into jelly. Did you know, of course, thank you know, you were not involved in a, anything close right. to a violent crime. But did they take did the, did the parole officers take you back to what you were? Sure. sure. The parole, parole commissioners uh, did that and they wanted to relive. They said we read the clippings. Now, the clippings largely in the media are things that are leaked by the prosecutor. And it's to paint as bad a picture as possible so that it helps in the plea coercion. Just to give you an illustration, uh, at the back during that time, um, my my wife and I own a a bungalow in the Catskills. It's one of 70 in a former bungalow colony. This is a prefab bungalow that's 35 years old. And the prosecutor and, and the prosecutor's office under 
former Attorney General Schneiderman, who I think you're all aware of, was uh, forced to resign after it was found that he was beating up women and engaging in uh, behavior of uh, serious, uh, you know, okay. lack of any kind of ethics or morals, um, leaked to the Daily News that my wife and I owned a 70-acre compound in the Catskills that was worth tens of millions of dollars. Now, fortunately, the reporter in this particular case actually called my lawyer for comment. My lawyer calls me and says, you know, what's this compound? And I explained it to him. He started laughing. And he said, I better call this guy back before they print it. But that will show you the lengths they go. So you, to. so you were at, at your parole board here. In other words, no, the, no, we, the we, people we, that were in the video we saw were surprised that they had to go back to relive the, the crime that they were convicted of. You knew that you would have to go back to that space again. No question right? about it. What troubled me about the video was that the counselors and the, the attorneys or other people helping these people prepare for their parole hearing didn't prepare them. I mean, they should have had some sort of dry run with the difficult questions so they could be prepared and not break down and not, you know, live through difficulty. And I, you know, I heard the, the horrific story about the, you know, the woman whose abusive boyfriend killed her grandmother. And I mean, just horrific, horrible story. And you, you think about that these kinds of cases go on and, you know, in effect, she was almost a victim too, because she was on drugs and she had all kinds of other issues. And she was fearful of this guy killing her son as well. Right. And, 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 and but we, you, in that video, I don't know who you, which commissioner you had that was dealing with you, but there mm-hmm. was a, there was a commissioner Ferguson. Right. Um, and I know that uh, we've all met people like that. And I'm sure Rabbi Scheinman and Rabbi Kolakowski have seen people like that. And he says, I've got to stand up for the, I've got a responsibility to the community. Uh, we've had, because maybe the tears, the remorse, all of that is just a orchestrated act but really the person hasn't changed. Now, again, in your situation, there was nothing violent, but you, you are on the forefront along with many others about, about adjusting, altering, changing the criminal justice system. Even when it, would you also agree that even though someone committed some, a violent crime like this woman did, sure. uh, helping choke her grandmother to death, um, would would you say that now that they've served that minimum time, we should look at them who they are and say they no longer pose a threat? Or would you do you understand Ferguson's point that he doesn't want to let someone who has murdered back on the streets? Do you think there's any validity to it? Well, I, I think there are two things. One is if there's a sentence that you know the judge and the prosecutor and defense and the jury, if it is a trial come to the conclusion that that person deserves a shot at parole at some point, then I think that's where they're intervening years and what they do and what they don't do. Because if somebody is going to remain violent, they're going to remain violent in prison. We see that on a regular basis in places like Rikers Island and other facilities, including some federal facilities, where people remain violent during their time in those facilities. So that's, you know, those are the kinds that Ferguson needs to be vigilant for, that if somebody is going to be coming back out and you see that the person is violent in prison, okay, that's the time to put a stop sign. There are times also for a green light and for a yellow light, 
and that's where you evaluate what the person has lived in prison all these years. And, and you know, the points that are made in the video, and which are so, so true, is that the American prison system, federally and in the States, has been a mashab, become a mashab zikanum. I mean, this is, we're talking about assisted living in nursing home facilities, and there are people in there who may have committed violent crimes and who have changed their ways, have had no violent episodes, and yet, because of the Ferguson attitude, are simply denied the opportunity to come out. I think there's another thing besides the idea, I've got to protect you. And of course, that seems to be ridiculous when the person is pushing 80 years old, that he's suddenly going to, you know, get out his machete again and be, you know, the the terror of the South Side. That doesn't seem like that's going to happen. But there is, I believe, and we're going to get Rabbi Scheinman in and, and Yitzchuk in, I know you have to leave soon, but there also, I think, really is the family that is pressuring the parole board, not the grand parole. I mean, I've seen films about how the family, the family can can somehow. I don't know if it's true anymore. But the family can come to the hearing. The family is somehow allowed to be there. I don't know if that's true with the videos anymore. But so I was right? going to say in, in in New York, the um, even even the New York parole board, which is pretty strict, still remains pretty strict and not as progressive as one would think for a state like New York, um, they pay less attention to families and to letters from the families. Um, uh, I'm, talking, the I'm talking about the family. Except, except, I know, the families, I'm talking about the families of the victims. Yes. And except in the case of police officers. Mm-hmm. That's the magic that they do pay attention to the families because the union, police officers union, is very effective in energizing the families and being paid attention to by parole, parole boards. But families of most victims, unless it's a particularly heinous crime, are really not given the opportunity. And, you know, in, in many cases, they probably should be given the opportunity uh, to speak up. But And you were about to say the family of the offender is not given the kind of opportunity that they should be given as well. Because if the offender has had a good record in prison, and has served the, the full term of their minimum sentence that they were required to serve, and they have a family waiting for them, they're not going to be homeless. I mean, the kinds of things that would lead to, to recidivism is not an issue in those cases. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be something that's important to take because the families of offenders are often the collateral damage. They lose their breadwinner. They sure. get stigmatized by the community. They're, there's some terrible things that happen, and it happens in, in the from community, too. I'm sure. Willie, I know one of the things that we have been all working together, Rabbi Scheinman, and, and this in a small way, is to try to push and raise public awareness. You've been involved uh, with trying to uh, get changes done. We talk about the Tzedek Association. Is this also in their packet of changes? One of the things that Rabbi Weiss said when he was on this program was, was that the... Um, that we have to stop judges being prosecutors. Another thing he said was that the judges who sentence need to take trips to uh, the, the prisons to see the situation. Is this, maybe this should also be in their docket, in their list, is that parole, as you're saying, this parole board system in some states should be eliminated. And it should be what you said, Willie, which was if 
there's there's a certain way to determine that he's been he's met those uh, uh, conditions. Release happens as opposed to having to the, going through this very embarrassing, dehumanizing, ugly type of reliving. May, so are you aware, is that part of what, what's being pushed? In it terms it of- is. There, there is, in fact, um, we actually did some work with, uh, with SEDEC and with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers on, in particular, on cases related to elderly inmates, Jewish and non-Jewish, to get them clemency because of, uh, I guess you'd call them recalcitrant parole boards or probation offices that refused to let them out when they were in fact deserving of getting out and they were elderly people had served 30 or 40 years in prison, but because they had a, uh, had faced tough parole boards. Or maybe there should be directives to these commissioners about what's out of bounds. In other words, the idea of, of, of going back to the crime again being retried doesn't seem to make any sense. That trial happened already. If the parole was about you did the crime, now let's see who you are. You, the way to determine that is not to take the person b- back to the crime. Obviously, he regrets that. He's going to say that. Maybe that should. Maybe there should be regulations. And in other words, let me say it better. The parole board hearing needs to be having has to have an Uber monitor. On top of that, to make sure that that it was a proper parole board inquiry, that it wasn't just let's take this guy and, and, and break him down and destroy him by having him own up again to either, as you said, crimes he didn't commit or the crime he did commit. There should be that should also be part of what we are demanding in terms of criminal justice reform. Would you? There regularly in New York State have been court decisions saying that people should be granted new parole hearings because of the fact that that parole hearing centered on the person's crime and not on their rehabilitation. Mm. Nevertheless, because we are in a a flawed system, and particularly criminal justice system is very flawed, the combination of people, uh, the prosecutors, prosecutors often hold up parole. I know in my own case, the prosecutor wanted me to be on parole for an extra six years. Fortunately, he didn't last in office long yes. enough to make that happen. <laughs> right. So, Willie, look, I know that, uh, you know, going back here was painful. I know you're on a tight schedule. But I think one thing that we see, and maybe we should, all of us should take heart in this, is that when you do have media that spreads and you're able to find the story and present it in a, in a manner that is true but dramatic and interesting – it will cause people who are in the doldrums to all of a sudden sharpen their ideas and maybe make a difference. And maybe we should, you know, we should try to, to promote as much as possible these stories and try to find them. So, Willie, well, thanks I a lot. Tremendous Yashiko to you and your panel. I mean, you okay. guys do incredible work and what you're doing on this podcast is really inspiring others to, to do more to help. Okay. Thank you a lot, Willie. Okay. Be well. We're going to now bring in well, if I don't speak that. All right. You will. You will. <laughs> All right, Shyman. Um, I know that the state of Illinois is a little bit different than the state of New York. Talk a little bit about, from your perspective, uh, I don't know if you saw the video or not, but talk a little bit from your perspective about uh, how you see what parole boards were, what they are now, and you know, should things change or not? Well, number one, I did see the video. Uh, it's very powerful. Uh, number two, is when I first began in the state of Illinois, they 
they changed law. So for uh, through the 80s, there were people that were sentenced under the old law, which was an indeterminate sentence. They had a minimum and then if you could get out early, you got you, you know, that they would decide each year you had to go back. And then uh, the new law is everybody has a determined sentence. Mm. Nobody has to go before a parole board. You you would serve your time, whatever it is. And now that what they've changed is it used to be 50% of the sentence. Then people got upset. What do you mean? We thought the guy's gonna be in 20 years, he's out after 10 years, because it was 50%. So they made certain crimes 85%, certain crimes hundred percent. But everybody has a determined sentence in Illinois. Uh, in, in the first few years when I was there, I used to um, hear these stories from the men, they were called C numbers. They would have to go before the parole board every year. And, uh, you know, they had, they had, they had they told me about their hopes, about what they're gonna do. We used to, I used to uh, speak to them about what their strategy should be and how they should present it. Um, how many and- of them, what, by percentage to what you remember, how many of them were successful percentage wise of achieving parole? Uh, on the first shot, none. None. Except for one. <laughs> except for, except for one. I have a young, um, a, a, a violent crime, a homicide, a, uh, it's, but, but as a juvenile, got sentenced as an adult, but got sentenced under the old order, law and was sentenced to 14 to 21 years. So after seven years, it was when it was 50%. He went before the parole board and on his very, very first hearing, they released him. They mm. released him. I mean, he came in, he went out, he looked like he was a, he looked himself like he was a, a, a rabbinic student. He had a beard, he had payas, he has yarmulke, tzitzis. He went straight to Morristown after he got out anyway. But uh, he, he wow. really, he really did. Do how, he got how was he able? So again, I, I would assume the Hevra at the state of Illinois weren't any more compassionate than the New York ones why was he able to get it on the first shot what do you think what do you think he did to be able to convince them that they should release it? I, I don't think he had any um he never um it, he never said that he didn't do the crime he was very um contrite about what he did and he really one of the first times i met him he said can i even do a for what i did i mean he took a life and he took a jewish life at that and you know, that's pretty, pretty rough. Um, and, uh, but he really did Truva and they were able just to see him. That was not on video, it was live. And uh, um, the, uh, the, the victims, the parents were very much against him getting out, but uh, they, but, but they saw he was ready. I mean, wow. it, was, it, would, it would serve no purpose of him. He did his minimum time and, and it produced, they felt that, what had to happen happened and they, they didn't see any reason for him but that was the able. exception that proves the rule that most people in the old system didn't get it on the first time other um, guys it was year after year disappointment after disappointment and they were only you know maybe they had to go through 10 times an extra decade or two before they actually uh got wow. released and 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 just to just to get it clear when they were sentenced it was it was it was understood that they would be eligible for parole, let's say 50 or 80. Now it's 80 percent of the crime. But after 50 percent of time served, that they would be eligible to make their case to the parole board 
for to be for release, right? That's the way it was. Now today, Rabbi Scheinman, you're telling me that let's say someone had committed uh, that violent crime um, at sentencing, nothing about a parole board later, they would be told you're going to serve this amount of time no matter what. Correct. Correct. Now, and then they... They see nobody, nobody comes to interview them. When their release date comes, they go out on parole. So in other words, they don't have to appear in front of anyone and talk, be contrite. The only thing is what, as Willie was saying, if they have a rap sheet from prison of what they've done, that's going to mitigate against them getting the parole, right? No. No? No, no. What will happen is, what will happen is, let's say somebody um, is, most people get a a day-for-day good time. So they have a 10-year sentence. That means after five years, they would have earned enough uh, days to get out after five years. If they make trouble in prison, um, they get penalized. They have good time taken away. So in prison, the prison term is they end up doing dead time. Dead time means they could have been out after five years, but since you made trouble, you you lost good time. But it's not, it has nothing to do with the parole board. That's just a penalty uh, that the authorities give. They, you know, if he co- caused a big commotion in the prison, you lose you lose one year of good time. You're going to stay an extra twelve months. So you instead of five years, you're going to do six years. But but it, but it, but it doesn't undermine totally their ability to leave a couple of years early or forty five percent early. And even if you lose good time, you can earn it back. You can earn back. So it's. Time. So it sounds like Illinois is a lot more progressive in that way, or at least more honest than what, what you saw in the video, what people had to make their case oh, to. Oh, yeah, that, that, New- that's crazy. I'm, I'm surprised that still exists in New York. That's like, and that hasn't been found in Illinois for 40 years. And especially, you know, they mentioned how New York is where the idea of the parole came up in the first place. And that's the place where they are, they are the least uh, advanced. You know, we talk about doing tshuva over this big Aveira that you did, um, and that a person, you know, if, is he an Ishacher, not an Ishacher, it, it would seem that, that, that we could probably help um, somehow these type of places like New York, who still have this system, to explain what tshuva means. It isn't necessarily going back and being shaku in that same chet. If the person... Right. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it seems that like the same way the Rambam says, based on the Gemara, that it was Isa Isha, Isa Mokoim, that you didn't act that way. Lachora, the life in prison should be, can be a simon, although, I mean, you, there's enough hashkocha going on that it should be enough of an indicator that the person has changed. Uh, you talked about this boy who became a Balchuva. It would seem that, that we need to come up with a method that you can see that the person isn't just acting, that there's a way that you can see the person has changed, the attitude, things that, like, like Willie said, he wasn't in fights, things that, but also to understand that the idea of, of, of letting a person go isn't, a, uh, it isn't an expiation or wiping clean of what he did wrong. It's, it's more the fact that this, is, this person has gone through penance and has changed. And it would seem that we need to try to explain that. I mean, we come from a system, right, Rabbi Benjamin? We come from a system that that believes in tshuva, that we, as we've talked about, 
it doesn't seem like uh, these places really get it in that way. And that's something I think that we need to be able to articulate, maybe uh, yourself and others, if that's what's going to be necessary. So, Rabbi Yemen, thank you so much for, for adding and giving us the, you know, Yitzhak, if you heard, Willie said that the families of the victims only in police cases have influence. He, his, his experience in New York was the families don't have that much control. Let's hear about Pennsylvania. My, my understanding is, again, I'm, I'm not really privy to what goes on, but I've seen the, these types of cases where, uh, you know, on the rap sheet, it'll say that, you know, the, there's unanimous support all the way up to the superintendent, which, you know, that's what we call the warden, for this person to receive parole and they and they won't receive the parole now there there could be one reason that they might deny the parole could be to test how is this person going to react with the disappointment this way to see they'll give them a, a six month hit let's say to see if they re- react negatively then it's a, a sign that they haven't accomplished what they need to meaning i i remember there was a case there was a a young man he uh was a, a voyeur. He left his phone in, in the bathroom at a, a CVS where he worked and recorded a lot of victims in the bathroom. And he was the model prisoner for uh, until his minimum. When the minimum hit, he was expecting to go home. And he, he pretty much lost his mind. And uh, he went from being the model most easiest prisoner to really the most difficult and uh, he had to be transferred elsewhere because we we weren't able to help him and you know really he he failed that test you know that would be one one aspect of it the other would be uh you know cases i know of someone who uh he he killed someone who he is accused of uh stealing from his father and uh, he felt the police weren't helping him and just letting him go away and he, he killed this person and uh, again he got favorable uh favorable everything from inside but on the outside the victim's families said no we're we're not uh right so it's so it sounds like pennsylvania unlike what we heard from new york does seem to give a lot of weight and say that the state still represents the family, as opposed to a crime against society, they also feel they need to stand for the families that have been... Um, that have been... I'll, I'll tell you another issue, though. I mean, again, you mentioned before people, they have to admit to the crime. I mean, you have, you'll have someone who they, they refuse to, to, you know, they, they maintain their innocence and they had maybe 10 to 30 years and now they're 27 years in, you know, and, and what did they, they didn't lose anything. They didn't gain anything by maintaining their innocence. So that to me, that shows that they really are innocent. Why, you know, or else they would have just admitted <laughs> to it and gone on with it. You know, what, why are they maintaining innocence? When, you know, when, when, you know, they have no hope of getting out until they max out the other, but the issue with, maxing out uh which is a, a criminal justice issue that is is also a very major thing when when someone goes out on parole they have to have a home plan and they're often denied parole if they don't have an adequate home plan uh but if they do have a home plan then you know they're the 
the state is able to look at, you know, look, make sure that they're settled before they max out. Even, you know, they generally will try to avoid allowing someone to max out just to make sure that they have where to go. When someone maxes out, you know, you, they put them, uh, they give them a ride to the bus station and that's it. And uh, who knows what's, what's going to happen to them. I've seen the other cases though. I've seen, uh, I remember there was a case, uh, there was a fellow who did not want to go out on parole. He, he, he had a, I think a two to four year sentence and he preferred to max out because he was somewhat of a vagabond. He didn't want to have to answer to parole officer. He didn't want to have to, you know, look over his shoulder all the time. He wanted to be able to do what he wants to do. I mean, and, um, you know, my, my, my Zeta, who was from, he was a parole officer. So I, I, I even though I, I was only 13 years old when he was Nifter, but I remember him very much. Um, but anyway, uh, so this, this, this inmate, he, he wanted to max out. He signed his max out papers because he didn't want to, he would rather have the comfort of staying in prison. Uh, and, uh, and then when he gets out, he can do whatever he wants. And they insisted he had to take the parole. They wouldn't let him max out. Right. Well, that, that might, that might have to do with, and that might be the reason why Rabbi Scheinman in Illinois, uh, the new system was developed because, it would the in order to alleviate the overcrowding in the prisons, right? That's one of the reasons why, you know, instead of right, we 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 uh, streamline the system not only for to that it shouldn't uh, people should have to go to that heartbreak of having to relive, but also because we don't have enough room. And 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 if this person, like you say, if he's eligible for parole and he he was right. Rabbi Scheinman, is that the way it is in Illinois? Can a person just... Actually, in Illinois, uh, when you're eligible for parole, I've had men who have done just what Yitzhak said. They said, wait a second. I don't... They they get out of prison, then they have three years parole. They said, I'd rather stay the extra three years in prison and go out, max out, and not have a parole agent. And and they allow them to do that in Illinois. Mm -hmm. They don't stop them. But what they gain is it's day for day. So the three years actually turns into 18 months. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, but there are men that do not want to have authority. They don't want to have conditions. They don't want to have anybody asking them where they're going. They just want to max out and leave in Illinois. They're allowed to do that. So, so I, I guess the way I would explain it, because I've, I, I've had people come to my class in the last couple of years who have been in halfway homes, who had to report to the parole officer, uh, we've we've had a student who came to our yeshiva was also in a halfway house. So I know that it's sort of disconcerting, right? In other words, I'm free, but I'm not free. I'd rather just be completely in prison and oh. the way it is, rather than to be in this limbo place where I'm tantalized by the possibility of freedom, but I have to constantly call and I constantly have to have the monitor. So in that way, I guess that could be the reason psychologically it might be easier. I'm sure oh, you'd... Well. Also, also, you know, they they can't drink alcohol on parole. They can't. They they have a, a lot of freedoms taken away from them. You know, mm-hmm. even even uh, internet access is limited. Many other things. If they if they go to, uh, you know, places that are legal to go to but are problematic, that are vices, they they uh, they could be per, in violation of their parole and, and sent back to prison. 
So, so right, but of course, the prison they don't get the they don't have all these amenities either. But at least they know where they're at, and they're not going to fall into a hole. The person who would the person that I was familiar with started coming to my shear regularly, and he came to me afterwards after he was in the shear for a couple of weeks. He would leave at a certain time every time during the shear, and he wanted to explain to me that it wasn't that he didn't like the shear, but that he had to go make a phone call to his parole officer to tell him where he was. And, and our shear was the closest place for him to go. I, I tell you, he was one of the best guys that we had over the years. But, uh, you know, so that is definitely a, um, I can understand that maybe taking the, the, the more ain't Suffolk Mutsimidevadai, so to speak. All right. Well, I think we, we've definitely, uh, uh, I think, brought the idea into uh, more bass relief in terms of people's consciousness. And as we said with Willie, uh, there's probably needs to be a, a strong look at all the states to try to streamline the system to make it fairer in a way that um, uh, allows for, as you always say, it's like, right, it should be a penitentiary. It shouldn't just be a place to flagellate. Not, not everywhere even has parole. The federal system has no parole. You know, it's uh, right. They just go out. It's a term and sentence. Yeah. I mean, I think at near near the end, they can they can be some early release, but not. You know, I think once you've served, I don't remember how much it is. Uh, mm-hmm. I know ninety five percent of the sentence there there is some early release program, but there is no parole there. You know, uh, Jonathan Pollard was one of the last people to be convicted while there was a parole system. So he he got out on parole from his life sentence. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we know, of course, uh, he, how he had to uh, once again uh, go back to that moment of what, what he was, what his thoughts and why he did what he did. All right. We should definitely, uh, we'll see us. Hopefully uh, we'll be able to tackle a another topic soon. Take care, everybody. We'll catch you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.